0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our podcast, The Digital Grocer. I'm your host Sylvain Perrier. Sam, Mark Fairhurst. Uh, Mark is, uh, I think, he's dealing with amoeba dysentery right now, and I think probably passed out somewhere uh, east of the city. But we have our trusted sound engineer here and our sidekick Kevin Glenn. How's it going? Awesome. So we are recording an intro to the intro of the podcast that's about to play. So let me share with you guys uh, some important information here. Back on, I think it was July 3rd, we recorded, I would say it's a, an important podcast with Sean Butler. Sean was a former employee of Shaft. It was a podcast meant to, to talk about the mealkin industry and so on. And it was great really talking to Sean. I mean, this guy really gets this space. In full disclosure, Sean never talked about the financial performance of Shaft. We never asked him any questions of the like, whether it was during the recording session or even before or after. Now there's been kind of a series of things that have happened in the space that we felt that as opposed to waiting to to release this episode, which we had kind of decided was going to be in our our cycle of, of episodes, it was going to be number eight. We decided to accelerate the release. So this is formally going to be con number four. Actually, no, number five because number four was we talked about the whole ADA thing. So Kevin worked his magic over the weekend and kind of did the editing of the episode because traditionally what we do is when I go up to the mic I kind of explain, hey, this is episode X, right? So uh, we decided to accelerate it, and the reason is is the whole demise of Chef, which is really sad in any case. You know, we're talking about 350 people that are out of a job, and this happened really quickly, so. Not only did we record our episode with Sean on the 3rd, I was actually co-chairing the uh, Digital Food and Beverage Show in Chicago on Monday the 16th. I actually participated in a panel on, on the 16th hosted by uh, the supermarket guru himself, Phil Lempert. And the next day I was actually co-chairing when I did the keynote and you know, hosted my own panel and introduced a bunch of amazing speakers. On the Monday morning, I met the CMO of Chef, and he went up on stage and gave a presentation. And that night, I was sick, sick as a dog in Chicago, and I was in the hotel room. And then the information came out through TechCrunch and Business Insider that uh, the CEO of Chef sent out an email to the staff uh, ceasing the operations of the business. It's just, you know, when you're in a startup world and so on, and specifically in a in the food vertical and you're really trying to kind of go out there and make it your own, it's really difficult. And they just, they succumb to not being able to raise capital. So now I wish those guys a, a lot of luck in, in their future endeavors and so on. I will tell you that the whole industry of meal kits is rapidly taking off. There's tons of consolidation. It's not an easy space to be in whatsoever, right? Because you're faced with three probably very difficult challenges, and certainly we're privy to some of those challenges, but there's some additional components that the meal kit industry has that we we just don't. Number one is you have to have a solid platform, solid technology. The second one, quite frankly, is you have to not only have a solid piece of technology to be able to back you up, it has to be compelling, and you have to build an audience. You have to get trusted consumers to believe in you and to try your product and to stay on for the long haul, right? So you you build up that depth subscriber base. The third one, and this is the one that we don't face here at Mercatus. In fact, some of our retailers don't to a certain extent. You have to build out a whole operational process and framework and equipment in the back end to be able to prepare these meal kits and to do it in a way that delivers margin to you and Sean talks about this right the margins in the different levels and you just don't roll out of bed one morning and say hey I'm going to be in the meal kit industry and I'm going to make X percent of margin on each of my meals you can't do that without investing in people and investing in infrastructure I think at one point if I remember correctly from the trades that chef had 350 employees in, in El Segundo I'm wondering if they bought the old fresh and easy environment. Fresh & Easy was originally started by Tesco. Tesco out of UK started up Fresh & Easy in California. The big thing Fresh & Easy did was ready-made meals and really fresh meals inside their stores, but they had a commissary, this kind of central depot environment where these meals were built. And I've always kind of wondered if Chef was the company that acquired the assets of Fresh & Easy. This morning Chick-fil-A out of Atlanta announced they were getting in the meal kit industry. Shocking. It's the first QSR to do it, right? Quick serve restaurant to do it. Um, I'm interested in the fact that they do drive-through if that's going to help, right? That's kind of new. Martha Stewart is getting into meal kits. First three are free. You know, it takes 30 minutes to prepare it and there's a a recipe card on the inside. But if there's someone that's going to get I wouldn't call it syndication, but distribution for their meal kits. It'll be Martha Stewart. Mm-hmm. Let's be honest, right? It's Martha. Yeah, there's a little bit of Martha in every meal. So when we were in Chicago at the uh, Food and uh, Digital Food and Beverage Show, which was an amazing show, content was really well, I'd say tailored for for the audience and the attendees. Carmelik Kajini was up on stage from WalmartJet.com. She she's just such an amazing woman. I I would literally do pretty much anything to work for her. When you listen to her talk about e-commerce and marketing, for some reason, she's got it figured out. Not because she's not good at what she does. She's amazing at what she does, but she's got such presence and such strength. Her content was on point, specifically stuff on what Walmart's doing to kind of tackle e-commerce. And it was an amazing breath of fresh air. We had also Scott Thompson. Scott is responsible for ClickList. He's a VP at Kroger for ClickList. Uh, some amazing insights coming coming out of Kroger. And as I was chairing the second day, doing the keynote stuff, so I snuck in a bunch of media interviews. And one of them happened to be a telephone interview to be on the retail focus podcast. Great podcast. The content is very apropos in time for what's happening in the industry for that week, for that day, quite frankly. And the hosts were really gracious to have me on. I think I did I listened to the rough episode and li- I haven't listened to the final one that was submitted, but I think I, I was on for like 15, 15, 20 minutes. That sounds uh, about right. I listened to the most of the episode already and it sounds like they did a ton of research because they're just dropping knowledge all over the- Yeah. It's uh, it was a great interview. So I want to say thanks to the guys over at Retail Focus and it was uh, amazing to be on your show. So ladies and gentlemen, my suggestion is you definitely listen into the show. If you have any questions. Reach out to us. You can find out what our social media channels are by going to our website, www.mercatus.com. You can send me some questions if you want. So sylvain.perrier, P-E-R-R-I-E-R, just like the water, at mercatus.com. Or even better, just send me uh, send me some questions via Twitter, at Perrier. S-Y-L as in Larry, V-A-I-N is in Nancy Perrier. And we look forward to getting your feedback and your comments regarding episode five with our friend Sean Butler. Thank you. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Mercatus Podcast, Digital Grocer, episode eight, Director's Cut, Redux. We're recording right here at Mercatus HQ in the heart of downtown Toronto, Canada, in the fashion district. And I will tell you, it is a sweltering day. I think the planet's on fire.
1: (laughs) It's 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 like three million degrees.
0: It's three million degrees. I saw two people burst into flames on the sidewalk (laughs) this afternoon. I saw a third person accidentally melt. But it's actually (laughs) it's actually cold in here. I'm I am wearing a very fashionable Mercatus jacket. Jacket, sweater. Um, I think people and I'm wearing sandals and with jeans and people are looking at me. I think he's like what's wrong with this guy? He's a bit he's not right. I'm your host Sylvain Perrier, president and CEO of Mercatus Technologies. Joining me is as always is Mark Fairhurst, our senior director of marketing, and making the audio magic, a little bit like David Copperfield, so please do not disappear, is our sound engineer Kevin Glenn. Thanks for that lovely intro. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Uh for those of you that are listening to our podcast, we actually have a very apropos subject today. And it's something that's extremely relevant with respect to what's happening in the industry. And it has to do with meal kits. Now it seems that every week there's a new launch, a merger, an acquisition in this space. So Kroger purchased Home Chef in May 2018. Probably well before that was Albertsons purchasing Plated back in September 17, and Blue Apron IPO'd in 2017. And I haven't looked up their stock value in a while, so I'm not entirely sure how they're trending. So FMI released their most recent annual trend report, and what's really funny when you kind of look at meal kits and so on, they claim that it's really the upper bracket of the older millennials that are driving the purchase of meal kits. And the reason for that is, You know, millennials today, if you look at it, that bracket, I think, markets between the ages of 18 to 37, Mm -hmm. well, apparently at a much younger age, we're realizing that we have to eat healthy to stay alive a lot longer, which is apparently shocking. It took me an extra 10 years to figure that one out. And also it's the notion of the experience and wanting to discover and trying new things. Today the industry is worth roughly 2.2 billion. And it's estimated to hit three billion to five billion by 2020. And there's an interesting another interesting statistic, and this actually didn't come out of the um, FMI report. I actually pulled this one out, some of the research we've done here at Mercatus, is that forty one percent of American adults are visiting cooking websites. Mm-hmm. right? And we get this question a lot from our own retailers that are saying to us, you know, we really need recipes on our website. Yeah. We try to explain to them, it's really a third or fourth not even most important property on your website. That the reality, if consumers want to go out and they want to experiment with things, they'll explore the internet to find how to cook things. Now, Walmart has admitted, I'm not sure if this was in a public announcement or not, but certainly uh, through the trades, that by the end of this year, they will outfit 2,000 locations with some sort of meal kit solution. We're not entirely sure if they're going to try to tackle this on their own or they'll partner with someone. So stay tuned in terms of what's going to happen with Walmart. Now I have my own thesis in terms of this whole interest in meal kits. Mm-hmm. So most of the the listeners out there probably don't know, but I spent an enormous amount of time in Charlotte, North Carolina between the, oh, the year of, I would say starting late 07 right through to 2011 and specifically in South Park, which is an area of Charlotte the suburb, if you will, and sometime in Fort Mill, South, South Carolina, which is over yonder, as they would say <laughs> in North Carolina. And uh, I was there during the downturn of the economy. And I will tell you, it was really, really scary because i met the Omni Hotel and they're literally, you know, when Lehman Brothers collapsed right, in New York right. on the following week, in the hotel, they were bringing in lineups of employees from Bank of America's head office and Wachovia, and right. there these mass layoffs. It was really, really strange. And at one point, South Carolina's unemployment rate was 17%, considerably higher than the national average. Wow. Well, so this had a really interesting effect on the grocery retail space. Mm-hmm. And still today, we are seeing those effects play out. So, really smart retailers understood that they needed to reinvent themselves. So they started investing in their private label brands. They started to invest in their store formats. They started to invest in the layout of their stores. And we saw a lot of consumers what I call trade down. So if you don't know what trade down means, is uh, this is a great example, but if you were shopping at Dean and DeLuca, Right? Super high-end Dean & DeLuca. I think you, a, a can of coffee, Café Monde, mm-hmm. is $35 American.
1: The specialty retailer in that area. In
0: that area. Right. Right? So if you can't afford Dean & DeLuca anymore, you're going to trade down. So maybe you go to a Harris Teeter. Right. If you can't afford a Harris Teeter, and I think Harris Teeter is, is affordable, you may go to, in that area, a bottom dollar food, which is a Del Hayes property. Mm-hmm. If you can't afford bottom dollar foods, you may decide to go to a Walmart. If you can't afford a Walmart, soup kitchen, that's the next. That's the rundown, you know, yeah. s- similar with the whole experience in restaurants. Right. So if you were if you're used to going to a Mortons, maybe you're going to a Tony Roma's. If you're not going to a Tony Roma's, maybe you're going to I don't know, McDonald's. But what we saw in Pacific Grocers I worked in the whole HMS category really take off. And by HMS, you mean? Home meal solutions, right. right? So it's ready-made meals where you go in and you get a protein and you get a starch or you get two starches or something like that. We saw a lot of CPGs kind of jump into the category and want to sponsor a lot of these HMS, solu- HMS ideas or solutions. Coca-Cola. So if you go in, you'd buy a rotisserie chicken, you may get two liters of Coke. And I think the reality is we had a lot of people grow up through those times. And so as the economy rebounded in the last 24 months, I mean, if you look today at the five economical drivers, right. they're fairly healthy. So the people that grew up through those times and watched their parents struggle, I think that they're being really sensible in the notion, I really like the, the whole HMS thing, but really the choices are kind of limited. And then suddenly the notion of convenience, the notion of wanting to safely experiment and try something. I don't think everyone rolls out of bed every morning and say, I'm going to try Sichuan Szechuan chicken tonight right, right. from scratch. But if you give me an idea how to do this on my own where it's really healthy and affordable, I'll totally jump in. Again, that's just my whole idea of what meal kits may have come from. But fear not, as like every other podcast we've done, we've brought in an expert. now. To help our listeners understand the whole ramen meal kits, we've asked Sean Butler, who's on the phone today from Los Angeles, and he's really going to help a driving home for us. Now, for those of you who may not know Sean, he's the managing director of emerging brand studios, a consultancy providing solutions to CPG brands, startups, and retailers, and investors in the food and beverage industry. Even better than that, which I think that's pretty phenomenal. Sean's actually the former vice president of retail for Chef. Now, if you guys don't know who Chef is, they are a meal kit powerhouse, and we're actually Sean was responsible for in-store product and go-to-market strategy. Sean, welcome to the show.
1: Hi, Sylvain. Uh, hi, Mark. Good to speak with you. Welcome.
0: So, Sean, you've been in this space for a tremendous amount of time. What type of consumers are buying into meal kits?
1: Well. You have two different sets of consumers, truly, between the traditional e-commerce, direct-to-consumer, subscription-style meal kit, and the in-store shopper. The fact is that the vast majority of U.S. shoppers who have the economic capabilities to buy meal kits have never tried them, but they are aware of them. And so both that Chef and in other roles and other projects – We've conducted segmentation studies and other market research in partnership with, you know, specialists, and it has repeatedly shown us that there is an interest in trying meal kits in in more than 50% of U.S. households, middle class and above, but depending on your data set, those whom have actually tried it are always under 20% and uh, sometimes much lower. And so... When you dig into that, what you most likely conclude is that the hundreds of millions of dollars in advertising spent over the last three years by HelloFresh and Blue Apron and and Plated and others has created really broad awareness of meal kits in the United States and then in Canada to a lesser extent with Good Food and uh, Miss Fresh, but the path to access is a fairly complicated one online. It's difficult to make an impulse purchase and so uh, one would hope then that a, an opportunity for significant market expansion is available through adding in the in-store channels and some other alternative channels and that the consumers who haven't tried meal kits will try them. They'll see an improved value proposition versus the original subscription style and they'll become adopters and the market will expand significantly.
0: And what's driving consumers toward the meal kits?
1: Well, a variety of factors. I would say if you think of consumer behavior in terms of meals instead of meal kits specifically or CPG meal products, what you can conclude is that uh, more and more consumers are purchasing food as meals and less consumers are purchasing food as ingredients. Nielsen released a study in um, March of 2018 that tracked the fastest-growing channels in the $1.5 trillion U.S. food industry. And you know, the fastest-growing channel by far since 2015 was Meal Kits, growing more than 3x, uh, the next closest channel. But the next closest channel was food delivery from restaurants. So Grubhub, Just to Eat, Postmates, etc., And so you put those pieces of information together with the trends year over year in retail grocery categories overall, where you have center store, including dairy and frozen contracting now year over year. And then you have those fresh perimeter categories, which are much more meal focused, growing uh, in the double digits across all the categories year over year, nationally across all uh, retail brands. Um, you know, you can say, all right, consumers are changing their behavior, and they're likely doing it because their overall lifestyle behavior is changing. They're spending less time preparing food, or they're seeking to to spend less time preparing food, and they're also focused on health and other trends. Uh, there's a lot of great information about the proliferation and expansion of food tribes over the past five years, meaning um, the stigma associated with veganism or vegetarianism or you know, gluten-free eating has gone away significantly at the same time you've had the, the emergence of all new food tribes like uh, paleo eating or uh, ketogenic eating and so on. And so these things are converging and as a result you have pretty significant growth in meal kits but that could also turn into pretty significant growth in the traditional home meal replacement or heat and eat categories or ready-to-eat categories. In a branded way, in the years to come.
0: Excellent. Now, Mark, have you have you tried a meal kit solution? No, I, personally, no,
1: I have not. What?
0: It's it's odd, right? Because here in Canada, the whole notion of meal kit, specifically in Toronto, mm-hmm. it's not discussed really in the dark corners of of, no, I, of the down <laughs> the downtown core. It's just
1: no. Really, what you see is the ready to to eat meals, right? Within the uh, the bakery or deli section of of the grocery stores, however, you're starting to see some penetration now. Whether it's advertising through Instagram or even the local commuter train, uh, you're you're seeing outdoor signage promoting HelloFresh, for example.
0: Yeah, there is a local company here. I think they're located north of the city. But the way that they promote their solution, and this is, it's interesting. It started off as a meal solution for the fitness industry, right? Right. So tell us your macros, we'll we'll do your 12 meals for 200 bucks and we'll deliver them to your home in some sort of a styrofoam cooler or some sort of frozen solution. I'm not sure how they do it. But it's odd, like even our Canadian retailers, Loblaws, I would think that a company like Longo's who has 17 plus stores and has a a pretty well established e-commerce model would be able to do the delivery of these solutions. Now, Sean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I get the sense that from reading up on this topic and from talking to you for this episode, is that really to be successful in this space, it's really not just about selling online, but it's also being able to distribute in store.
1: Yeah, that's certainly the way that the industry is evolving. And that customer centric distribution model, I think, has an opportunity to really flourish in meal kits across channels and then. I think you'll see a lot of that activity extending to other categories of food products after meal kits.
0: Now, when you were in this space, was the challenge more so about convincing consumers that this is a viable option, or was it was it equally or greater, more of an operational challenge in terms of getting the food, preparing it, and distributing it?
1: Yeah, well, it certainly has adjusted over time. And it depends on, you know, each brand has its unique challenges. So we're still very active in the industry as clients right now. We have active projects for five meal kit companies across uh, U.S., Canada, Europe, and Asia. And, um, you know, we see different things in different markets. But to Mark's point there, the Canadian market has traditionally been different than the U.S. market in that customer acquisition costs have been much lower in Canada and in Europe as well because there's been much less venture capital money pouring into the space. And so there's been much less spent on on acquisition. And so the opportunity in Canada still exists really significantly to educate shoppers about what meal kits are. Whereas in the States, just by virtue of how much money has been spent, that's more or less been achieved. And now the challenge is how do you create trial and, and loyalty in a category that consumers are already familiar with and how do you differentiate meal kits from the old-school home meal replacement you know eat, heat and eat products how do you show them that this is something in store which hasn't really existed before in a ready-to-cook category and demonstrate quality and value in that context
0: so i'm kind of curious why would a large retailer go out and buy a meal kit service provider. And why wouldn't they do this on their own considering they're already dealing with the food distributors, the CPGs and set themselves up to be able to kind of pick and pack and prep these things and put in good content and a recipe and ship them out, why make a large acquisition?
1: Well, there's there's a few good reasons, but we have seen both models at scale so far. So the flip side of, of uh, that, you've got Publix uh, with more than a thousand stores in uh, the American Southeast, who is assembling products in store, and they've got their own model. You've got H-E-B, which has done meal kits themselves, and then Walmart initially launched meal kits with an in-store assembly model. Whereas, you know, as you point out, Kroger has made an acquisition of Home Chef, Safeway Albertson has made an acquisition of Plated, and then companies like Chef have worked in partnership with large CPG companies to take advantage of this opportunity, you know, specifically the biggest pork company in North America, Smithfield Foods. And so to answer your question directly, I'll call back to a conversation I had a few days ago in New York with a senior or the senior product executive for one of the, the three biggest meal kit companies who was formerly of a very, very large multi-billion dollar consumer packaged goods company. We were talking about how there is not broad understanding of how complex, difficult uh, a meal kit supply chain is relative to other categories. So one thing you have to keep in mind is that meal kits, for the most part, are fully fresh supply chains. So you have some products like rice or like pasta uh, which doesn't require any sort of temperature conditioning. And there are some brands that in on a limited basis use uh, some frozen products. But by and large, you've got in-store three to six recipes at a time and ter- direct-to-consumer uh, delivery um, three or four recipes at a time. And then you're managing, I'd say, a minimum of five perishable supply chain components for each one of those recipes. And so typically you're rotating those recipes as well. And so in a given month, you can quite easily have more than a 100 perishable supply chain components to manage. And the retailer enterprise resource planning systems and their warehouse management software and their commissary facilities are not set up to manage that supply chain. You know, you can get the leaders in this space have the manufacturing costs for a single meal kit down to close to 50 cents, maybe a little bit more 60 cents for retail. Whereas starting out several years ago when the industry was getting started and, and where the retailers would likely be something closer to four or $5 uh, per unit. And so the economics just don't really work. And one of the trends in retail, as you will well know, has been to move labor out of the stores and into commissary facilities, often third-party operated commissary facilities. And so for someone like Walmart, who initially was doing meal kits in 200 stores through their deli department, uh, what they may find is that they have a better opportunity to move that labor off their books, strengthen their contribution margins, and deliver a better product to consumers at the same time.
0: That's great. Sean, you're saying this, and I'm, I'm, like, I'm thinking, The margins are great. Mm -hmm. If it's done properly, then I'm starting to think not just managing the supply chain, but managing recalls, dealing with the FDA if there's an issue. It can get really complex really quick. Now, if you're doing 100 meal kits a week, you have 200 stores, I get it. But there comes this tipping point where you just won't be prepared in any case. So that's great. Sean, if you were to look in your crystal ball, how do you see this playing out in the next three to five years?
1: I think pretty dramatic change is going to happen on the earlier side of that three to five year prediction. So right now we've seen the convergence of retail and perishable e-commerce through meal kits. I think that is going to extend to, to many other categories where you'll have customer-centric or omnichannel distribution of everything from perishable beverages to fresh commodity products like meat and dairy and so on in partnership with e-commerce brands and uh, brick-and-mortar retail. But but much more interestingly, I think the next level is going to be involving restaurants as well. Uh, and I'm talking specifically for Meal Kids, which I think will, will be on the cutting edge once again. And the way that I that happening is through the the customer lens. So we talked a few minutes before about how many consumers are aware of meal kits and have not tried them. Well, anyway, the majority of consumers are aware of them. Majority of consumers have not tried them. And so if you think about why that is, you can go along the customer journey for the traditional e-commerce subscription meal kit and see plenty of opportunities to not give it a try. So for one, you've got usually a $60 U.S. or greater minimum purchase in order to, you know, try this out. You've got a five, six, seven day lead time from when you place the order to when you're going to receive your first box. And then, you know, it's something that locks you in. And so you've got to manage it actively. And so how do you solve that? Well, it is a better value proposition in many ways. If you can just stop by the Walgreens or stop by the Kroger or the Walmart on your way home from work and pick something up for fifteen, sixteen dollars, you know, same day. But where I really see it going is same day delivery uh, with voice activation. And so if you're a consumer and you're driving in your car or you're sitting at your desk or at home and you can say, Alexa or Siri, I want a HelloFresh or Blue Apron chicken parmesan. And they say, two servings or four servings? And you say, four servings. And then Alexis says, when would you like it? And you say, today at 5 o'clock. And then uh, Alexis goes, okay, I've got a four-serving chicken parmesan from HelloFresh or Blue Apron coming between 5 o'clock and 6 o'clock this evening. That's going to really, really improve the customer value proposition And so in order to achieve that, you have to build your meal kit inventories to stock instead of to order. And then you've got to forward deploy that inventory in refrigerated cold storage locations, very close to where your consumers are, and then use the same last mile delivery solutions that those cold storage locations are using to transport products to consumers now. And so that is most likely to be restaurants, and so there's that, and then the successful meal kit brands will also get into things that aren't meal kits but are still meals, so heat and eat and ready-to-eat food. And so three to five years from now, you should be able to get a meal kit or a heat-and-eat meal that you pop in the oven or the microwave or a ready-to-eat meal all from what's called a Blue Apron or Hello HelloFresh brand all in the same day, and I think that will be dramatically different, obviously, than what we see today.
0: I mean, you said the word restaurant, and one of one of the applications that's taking Chicago and New York and Toronto by storm is Ritual, and I think the team over at, at Ritual just did a Series C uh, fundraise, I think north of sixty million.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah. and that's I recall that's right. Yeah, and that's
0: pretty big for yeah. a Canadian corp, yeah, you know, headquartered in Toronto, and I, I think I think Ulmer's may have been and Relay Ventures may have been involved in in a, in a Series C, and. I've always wondered, you know, in talking to some of the restaurateurs here in, in the fashion district, at one point does a specific meal from a restaurant become so, so valuable, and the restaurant becomes so inundated with orders, at one point do they take their own notion of inventory out of the restaurant? And just dedicated right to ritual. Right. And so it's not fulfilled in the restaurant. Yeah. And and maybe that never happens. Who knows? But you know, Sean raised a really good point about that. And at one point, do restaurants become a distribution point with the notion of forward inventory coming out of plated chef and all those things? Which I think that's, that's again, really interesting. But everything we've heard in evolution of the food and, and beverage, and, and quite frankly, now the drug industry, Centric to the theme has always been convenience for you, the consumer. Right. How do we right. make it that much easier? And I kind of feel and, and Sean, correct us if we're wrong here. Is the retailer part of driving this journey or they just have to really catch up?
1: Well, I mean, you've got diversity across the retail landscape. So you have some retailers even today who are not Participating in that customer journey at all, and then you've got you know very progressive retailers like Kroger or like Sobeys, who have invested extensively in an Okado partnership, uh, specifically with those two retailers, but across a range of initiatives to allow them to serve more customers, more meals at more times, you know, and in more convenient places, and so I think. Retailers are going to be a source of thought leadership and capital and innovation during this transformation, but I, I wouldn't consider them the primary source and that's largely just because of their size. So despite their very high levels of competence in many cases, certainly not in all cases, you know, they will not move as quickly as someone like Ritual to allow them to, to really lead this transformation.
0: You know, Mark, I'm always amazed by the smart people we bring on our show <laughs> that just, they just, they live in this space day in and day out yeah. and they have this you know, innate ability to shine a spotlight on really what's transforming the space so our audience can really benefit from us. So, Sean, it's been a pleasure having you on our show today. If people want to reach out to you to ask you a question, how can they do that?
1: Yeah, best place is just find me on LinkedIn. It's S E A N Butler, B U T L E R, and I'll be happy to connect.
0: Thank you very much for joining us today.
1: And thank you for having me,
0: ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to download our next episode, where I'm sure we're going to be tackling something amazingly important and in, in, that's happening in the space. That's really causing everyone some some head scratching and something else. I'm not sure what that is, Mark. How do
1: people get a hold of us? Best way to find us is on the web at www.mercatus.com. Our social channels are also listed at the footer of the website. We're on all the major channels. Thank you, everyone.